What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy. And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we discover what makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devoe and welcome to another episode in this insane adventure. So, Mr. Stay, you want to break with tradition, I hear. Yes, I'm going to break with tradition and we're going to open with a question of the week from a listener. And this is from Clive from Ireland. Uh, Hello, gents. First, I totally love this whole bestseller experiment thingy you've got going on. Bravo. Smiley face with two smiles. So that's bonus smiling. (laughs) Um, My question is, should budding authors consider using literary consultancies rather than directly liaising with a pay-for editor? Now, of course, literary consultancies dangle the carrot of the possibility that they may introduce you to an agent at the end of the process. And Clive and I went on and had a bit of an email conversation, and he was talking about one consultancy in particular, Cornerstones. And I just happened to look at Cornerstones, and I recognized a name uh, on the website from someone uh, talking about Cornerstones and how it had an effect on her career. And that is the author, Liz Fennick who's with us today. Hello, Liz. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Um, So Cornerstones, what does a literary consultancy do, first of all? Well, they can do many things. Um, They can do simple assessments. They can do in-depth assessments. They offer courses and weekends away. So what they provide is an editorial service, or at least what I used, and they try and match what you've written to the right type of editor. And what attracted you to them? Why did you go looking for them in the first place? I had reached the point where I was getting very positive rejections. I had full manuscript requests at publishers and agents, and they were coming back with (laughs) lots of lovely comments, but nothing matched. And I'd sit there and I'd look at it and I'm thinking, well, how can I improve if this one says this is wrong and this one says this is wrong? And I didn't know which way to turn. I sort of looked at it as if you've ever been on a diet and you reach a plateau and you have no idea how to break the plateau. And this seemed to be the best option to get a full manuscript assessment so that I could look at it more logically. 
because as the rider, you're too close. You're speaking my language, Liz. Positive rejections. <laughs> I love that. That's such a great way of putting it. <laughs> that is totally my world. I think we'll look forward to some of those, Mark, with our book, won't we? <laughs> well, uh, funny. I mean, you know, my, my fantasy novel is out. That's getting some positive rejections. Excellent. It is, it is that kind of, you know, we like it, but we don't love it. And people do have to fall in love with it because, you know, the edit is a long process. They have it's to... a very long process. <laughs> what was it yeah. like, Liz, when you, I mean, I guess it's one thing to get the kind of form rejection letter, which I know a lot of authors get, and that's that can be quite depressing. And I know people like stick those up on their walls, don't they? They're kind of like their antagonists and their, their motivation to say, I'm going to prove you wrong. But with a positive rejection, in some ways, if you're getting this great feedback and people aren't just going that last leg, I mean, how do you deal with that as an author when you've gone through that several times? How do you keep going? You scream, <laughs> um, you eat some chocolate, um, you probably have wine and you try and glean something out of it that you can work with. Because you know, it became clear that they liked my storytelling abilities. They liked my voice, but something was wrong. You know, they kept saying, I would love to see the next work. So you go on and you write the next work. And I think one of the things that really played into the whole publishing and editing thing was when my third book was accepted, the one that went through Cornerstones, I was working on my seventh book. Now, let's let's talk about your books a bit. Okay. Um, now, because uh, they're... They are The Cornish House, A Cornish Affair, A Cornish Stranger, and A Cornish Sky. I'm spotting a pattern here. You are indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your books. Why, why Cornwall? I mean, I know it's one of the most beautiful places on earth, but, you know, why Cornwall? Ooh, Cornwall's my muse. There's something about the landscape. I see um, stories in the landscape. And I also think because Cornwall can never belong to me, I try and hold on to it by writing stories about it, which I know sounds incredibly weird. But um, I give an example of um, my roots are all Irish. So the first time I went to Ireland, I could feel my roots going down into the ground. And I was at one. I was at home in a way that I'd never been before. Well, I arrived to Cornwall and I just felt this longing but my roots don't go down into the ground. And the only way I can capture that is to write it. Okay. And how long have you lived there now? Well, I went there the first time in 1989 and we bought a house in 96. So a while. Okay. And I mean, you talk about getting roots. Reminds me of that bit in Jaws where they were talking about Amity Island. Unless you're born on the island, you're not an island there. Is that, is that, is that kind of thing? Or? Well, my daughter's born there. She has a chuff on her birth certificate. So one of us right. belongs. Um, <laughs> but uh, it depends, I think, where in Cornwall you are, how receptive the community is to you. And the area that we live in um, have accepted me as their token American and writer. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, your books are inspired by Cornwall and the landscape and the people. What were you writing about before them? What did Cornwall change about your writing? Well, if we go back to when I was a child and I was writing then, it was more a desire to continue stories that I had read or that had been read to me, that desire to keep creating worlds. So then I went to university and I did my degree in English literature with a concentration in creative writing and medieval studies. Who knew? <laughs> and for my senior thesis, I wrote a work called um, An Irish Woman, and I wrote three quarters of it. So to describe it now, slightly saga-like 
in a way, but not quite. That was the goal. And my professor gave me her agent's name and told me to send it off. And I never did. Um, when I started writing fiction again in 2004, I looked up this agent and I thought, oh, my God, what have I just done? <laughs> you know, and my husband optimistically says, well, send her something now. And I'm thinking it's, you know, so many years too late to go back and knock on that one. But by then I had grown. And I think the thing is, I'm glad I didn't get published at 22 because I couldn't write the books that I really want to write. And I didn't have the skin thick enough to take the criticism that comes your way. And you get criticism in all directions as a writer. You not only do you have it from readers, but you have it from your editors and your agents and everything else. There's always people coming and saying something's wrong with it. So you have to be pretty comfortable <laughs> with receiving that criticism. And at 22, I probably couldn't have done it. Do you think at 22, you would have sought the help of someone like Cornerstone? I didn't even know they existed. No. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's all actually, I've got to tell you, this idea of a literary consultancy is completely new to me. So explain it to me in layman's terms. You, you've got the retreats, are they linked to, do you have to do the retreats in order to kind of, or is that just an extra bonus that they do intensives? That, that makes it sound like a cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the retreats and um, the assessments and the in-depth editorial reports are totally separate. So when I went on the retreat, I did one on women's fiction with the author Julie Cohen, who is one of the best teachers and writers out there that I know. And it was more working on overall skill and taking books apart and looking at the things that work, you know, from dialogue, description, setting, all those things that make up a novel and breaking them down. So it was a retreat doing that. And also at the same time, the opportunity to talk to Cornerstone's people about different aspects of your career and thinking. And I think the most important thing, aside from working on my skills, was the question is, which is the book? Because at that point I had written six books. Which is the book to launch you as a writer? And I looked at her without a question of a doubt, and I said, the Cornish House, or a Cornish House, as it was called then. And that really helped me think through the, I'm a brand, I am, I'm writing about Cornwall, there's something about me, and so forth. And so that was the novel I then chose to work on and invest in, if you will, because it is an investment anytime you go to a consultancy. It's not inexpensive. But what you get back or what I got back was an in-depth 28 pages of somebody looking at my manuscript and a marked up manuscript that had wonderful things in it like, this made me laugh. Oh, I like this description along with the bad stuff. <laughs> mm. Because many times when you're actually published, you don't get the little rub on the back that says, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> you know, you only get the list of what you need to fix. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I went on a retreat last year, Liz, with my writing group and there were, oh my goodness, 12 or 15 of us that we kind of hold ourselves away in this beautiful log cabin in Vancouver Island for seven days. And we actually Ooh. sat together in this kind of grand hall and there was a big open fireplace, which was beautiful. But the way the retreat worked is we'd come down each day and we would just write in the room with other people. This sounds like a different experience. Is, is that the case that you were in your own room writing and 
you'd get somebody to help you or was it with a group of people writing as well? It was more workshop. Right, yeah. We had all submitted work and then what Julie had done was go through it and pick a sample from each of us to demonstrate how things are done well and how they could be improved. So it was definitely learning about your own writing and then you had time to go away and think, oh my God, my head is hurting. How do I go back and improve but and also learning though from other people's critiquing of their work which is really an interesting way of doing it did you find you picked up a lot by hearing either similar things or, or did you learn much through that process as well i certainly did i think one of the most important skills you need to acquire is how to be critical of your own work by listening to other people criticize your work you know in a civilized environment it helps you to be able to do that. And then listening to other writers read their work out or read their work and think, oh, actually, this, you know, this is a bit wordy. There's too much description here, you know, and then you can just immediately turn your eyes to your own and think, oh, damn, you know, <laughs> the same faults are there. I just need to fix them. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems is too many writers have, have got that skill down pat that they're so critical of their work, they never finish their books. <laughs> I think we are our worst critics in some ways. I so I guess what you're saying is we have to become our best critics in terms of picking out things that are really going to help us rather than the critical side blocking us from, from carrying on the, the job. Well, I think you have two forms of inner voice. You have the inner critic, which is going to tell you that everything you write is total and utter crap. <laughs> and then you have what one of my mentors called the inner voice. And that's the one you need to cultivate. The inner voice is the one that will tell you that actually what you've written is good. But that thing that's niggling in the back of your mind, that scene that doesn't quite work, that's what you need to go in and cut. And an example of this was there was one of those scenes in the Cornish house and it had gone all the way through Cornerstones and it had gone through my agent and it came to the editor and she had sent me this huge, you know, editorial letter and this scene came up and I thought, oh, that one, my inner voice had been telling me about, but I'm like, but it does this and it does that. And it was really wonderful to sit down with my editor and say, okay, these are the things it does and that's why I need it. And she said, well, what else can we do? And in the end, the scene that came out of that brainstorming session is probably my favorite in the book. Oh, wow. So it's just a question of making it work harder. Yeah, it, you know, and again, understanding the difference between those two voices that you hear in your head that looks at the pages and think, oh, God, that's such crap. And then the other voice that says, well, actually, there's a lot there. That's good. But, you know, this scene that you love and that prose, you know, really, it's got to go. You had to write it to get the book done, but yeah. just get rid of it now. Right. Yes, yes, we just want to thank you, Liz. Yeah, we've read a lot of that, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. We want to thank you, Liz, for coming for telling us this because I think one of the most wonderful things to hear, no matter who we speak to, and no matter how successful they are as a you know published author, it's so lovely to hear that everyone deals with the same demons of this. Oh my God, it's all that rubbish. Because I mean, I think we're a bit there. Well, at least I'm there right now. <laughs> <laughs> in our journey with the book. And and I think it inspires a lot of people to hear that. You know, it, it shows that this is a normal process and actually part of the battle is kind of breaking through. I mean, what kind of advice would you have for people who are maybe in their first novel and they're feeling that to the point where they're thinking, oh, is it even worth considering carrying on with this? Well, I think one of the biggest battles, if it's your first book, is completion. And if it's not complete, nobody can ever judge it. <laughs> So that makes it very safe. So the thing is, 
completing a novel is a huge task. And for me, that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to cross was to complete it. I don't care what it was like, but just to get that done. So the first thing I'd say is complete the novel and know that it's terrible. Just accept that it's terrible. And this is the stone from which you carve something decent out of. And I'm at that point right now. I'm in the middle of book six. I'm at the roughly halfway point. The crows of doubt are circling, (laughs) you know, terribly thinking, oh, my God, what was I thinking starting on this ambitious project? Where am I going? What are the motivations? And it's at this point that I have to just say, trust yourself. Finish a rough draft. You've written this draft for you. Every draft hereafter is for your readers. And if you do that, then you can kind of get beyond yourself. Just think, you know, a friend has, um, in fact, Julie Cohen has a sticker on her um, computer that um, I'm not going to swear, but basically the first draft is and, you know, go from there. Just accept that this is nothing but a massive stone for you to carve the story out. I love that. I love what you said. The first draft is just for you. That's brilliant. I never Ooh. thought of it like that. And the rest of it is for your readers. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Excellent stuff. So with regards to the, the kind of theme of your books, I'm really curious about the Cornish link. Obviously, you've made a decision that you're doing this in almost a series fashion, or you're going to be using Cornish in the title. Was that something you decided to do very early on? Or did it happen in book two? Or All my books were set in Cornwall. But it was my editor who, after the first book, decided that we would use Cornwall in the title to brand me. Now, the book that comes out in March is a step away from that because that's called The Returning Tide. So the feeling is that the reader base has been built and those that are drawn to that will follow me and we can go to a bigger audience now. Yeah, I, saw, I saw Cornish wasn't in it. I was yeah, worried. It's still set in Cornwall. <laughs> is that a typo? <laughs> Are you sure you don't want the returning tides of Cornwall maybe or just stick it on the end? You know? Oh, that's brilliant. So, so have you found though that using, because it's a really interesting approach. I mean, we've talked to a lot of authors about the idea of doing series or connecting mm-hmm. books together. And it seems to be, especially in today's age of the publishing world, that's a very important thing from a business perspective to help readers kind of gather and congregate around a particular author. Have you found by using a location in your title as the branding that you've built up a particularly strong following in Cornwall or people who love Cornwall? Have you you noticed that a lot of your fan base have drawn to the book because of the location first and then realised, wow, they're great books? Uh, Exactly. Um, and my books are linked, but not serious, yeah. because they're all set in the same part of Cornwall. So you've got overlapping characters, your secondary characters, and readers really enjoy this, but they're all standalone at the same time. But Cornwall was, I mean, the best marketing tool was the cover of the first book, The Cornish House. It was just the sort of thing that it was different. It had blue skies and it had the cottage that everybody wanted. Mm. So they picked up the book because of the cover. Wow. How much you, do, of, you do look at the cottage on the front, you think, yeah, yeah I yeah. want to go to there. And I yeah, actually have yeah. a massive soft spot for Cornwall because that was the kind of the family holiday. Uh, you know, okay. We actually almost ended up moving there. But I do wonder, I do wonder, do you get much grief from Devon? Have you had any offers yet from Devon to say, come on, write a book about us. What's wrong with us? Book burnings in Devon. <laughs> um, no, I haven't had any problems and I sell well oh, in Devon too. <laughs> Where do you stand on scones with uh, jam? And... Jam first. Oh, oh look, look at that. Did you hear that? Yes. Whoa. Jam first. 
cream second, right? <laughs> well, if you put the jam on first, you can put lots of clotted cream on the top. It's true. It's actually, I hadn't thought about that. Otherwise, it can get a bit messy. Whereas if you put the, the cream on first, it's very hard to put your jam on. It can kind of run off, especially if you're a bit greedy like I am with the clotted cream. <laughs> did you know much about Cornwall? I mean, how did you go to Cornwall? Is it something, how did you end up there? Um, because of the man that's now my husband, um, I didn't realize the first weekend he brought me down there that I thought I was going to meet his parents. But no, I was going down for the Cornwall test. And if I hadn't fallen in love with Cornwall, I don't think we'd be 25 years married. Oh, it all comes out now. So this wasn't in the prenups then that you had to write books about. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's almost like the perfect career for somebody living in Cornwall because because it's so far from London. It's not something you can kind of commute to London if you had a, had a job there. It's almost this idyllic dream that most authors would want and you're about to tell us that it is all of that and more are you <laughs> well i love being there it as i say the landscape inspires me i look out the window and it's there it's fantastic it's cornwall's an elemental primitive raw county it's not pretty like devon don't get me wrong, it's beautiful in places, but it's not manicured in any way. And I think as a writer, that's deeply inspiring. Tapping into the mystic, tapping into the primitive. Yeah, tapping into the mystic. That's uh, something that uh, Mark and I have been doing a little bit of recently, haven't we? Oh, no clues. No clues, but there you go, just a little hint. Interesting you bring, <laughs> interesting you bring that up, though, because I, I, I think that there is a... I definitely feel that a lot when I go to Cornwall. It has something... It feels different. It's not just about how it looks. It's the feeling that you get there. There's something very, um, very magical in some ways. You know, there are other places that I've gone to that I felt a very strong pull. Recently, I was up in um, Scotland and I thought, oh, this is really nice. And I could see out of the corner of my eye little stories, but I, it didn't move me in quite the same way. Whereas I can go walk the cliffs, I can go into the woods and I see things. Um, not literally, but I just feel them. I see them in my mind. Now, one of the things we wanted to ask you about this, we've, we've heard a rumor through the grapevine that you love a bit of a rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this, this brings us to our second question of the week. Now, we, we did ask this question of Ben Aronovich a little while ago, and he was probably not the right person to ask because Ben, on his own admission, writes about 500 words a day and essentially delivers the first draft. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it's uh, friend of the show, Lawrence Doherty, who we know is writing along with us. And he said, can you write too many drafts? Is there a danger of losing the essence of the idea that got you writing in the first place? Now, how many drafts do you generally write? Is, is it I'm five, getting better. Or five or six, maybe? Uh, or? Yeah. Um, the shortest, the least I've done is four. Okay. Um, and the most I've done is 34. 34? Whoa, back up there. Whoa, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> it's complete, complete. <laughs> rewrites yeah wow wow so what what was the reason for that and was that one of your earlier books or has is that been more recently well it was one that was published second so a cornish affair was written before the cornish house and that was the book that i learned on i did write my soul out of that book but each rewrite i was learning new skills Every time, as I said, I would write a book and then I'd rewrite another book and I'd write a new book and I'd go back and rewrite the other two. Because with each book that I wrote, I gained so much more knowledge. So uh, the a Cornish Affair 
went through so many transformations. And my editor at the time said she liked the concept of the story, wanted that for book two. And I thought, okay, well, first of all, I need a major rewrite here because I think it now needs to be in first person. Oh, wow. And um, so that was huge. And I had not written in first person before. And at that time, there was a ghost in the story and I was keeping him in third person. And she said, no, I think you really need to have him in first person too. It's too jarring to have the two different things. I'm thinking, oh, great. You know, it's one thing to write third person about a Victorian ghost that's a boy that's 13 years old. But it's another thing to do it in first person because at least with first person, there's a little bit of separation. I could do a modern 13-year-old boy because I had two of them in the house at the time. So I really struggled with that. I read Dickens and I don't like reading Dickens. I like listening to Dickens, but I don't like reading him. (laughs) And it it just wasn't working. So I then cut him out of the story. And I thought, okay, well, that's a huge whole plot line. What am I going to do? And fortunately, my editor was on holiday down in Cornwall and came to visit. And so I sent her husband and my husband off in a boat with the kids. (laughs) And I walked her along the Helford River and I explained all my problems. And she said, well, you've obviously got to do that. So I then cut, I went back that night and cut 70,000 words out of the story. Out of how many words? Wow. How, how many words were there? Yeah. Uh, 95,000. Oh, cracky. So how, and, how different was the 34th rewrite compared to the first? I mean, were they completely different stories or was there at least, an, were there elements still there? Oh, no, the, ele- the basic premise of the story and the themes of the story were exactly the same. And the key characters, bar the ghost Toby, whom I loved, and someday I will resurrect my ghost, were all there. But I, you know, I learned so much through that. But one of the things I want to say is, when I went to go into first person, I went back to my fourth draft because I'd realized I'd written my voice out between the ensuing drafts and took that as the draft to rewrite into first person. Wow. So don't throw out anything. No, that's very true. That's very true. I've always said we should keep files of old stuff because there's always something you want to go back to. Over over what sort of period? This, Like I say, it was your second published book, but essentially the first of the Cornish books. How over... Are we talking months, years? Rewriting it? That, yeah. Well, the many of the rewrites. I was probably on rewrite 29 <laughs> when it, um, my editor said she wanted it. Um, and I wrote the first draft in 2005. And this would have been, it was published in 2013. Wow. But okay. it was a very tight time frame because I was on a book a year. So to try and delete 70,000 words. Yeah rewrite and then i had all her edits which involved a lot of major rewrites which brought me up to 34 but you've been through the process at that point you have the skill set and experience just have the confidence to say i'm chopping off a couple of limbs here you know i had but what was interesting is i thought well the cornish house was so much easier but of course i'd done major rewrite having been through the cornerstones process yeah through their editorial letter, I'd done a major rewrite at that point. And was Cornish Fair one of the books that you took to Cornerstone? No. Okay. Because that's one of the things I just want to clear up, that everyone who's going to Cornerstone, they have at least finished a novel. They're not taking along an outline and trying to write it on the retreat. Or are there people at different levels? There are people at different levels. Okay. And I think, you know, they offer the opportunity to uh, meet 
you know, have mentoring and brainstorming. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are out there for people. But I would say from my perspective that it's a waste of time unless you've at least completed one draft, if not two, before you go in there. You do need to have at least got to the end of something so you can step back and look at it. Well, what was extraordinary is um, when I did the Robert McKee story course the first time and there were two girls sitting behind us and they had never written anything more than three chapters. And I thought, what a huge investment to make on something that you haven't completed. And to get the most out of a seminar like that, it's great to have a current book in your head because, you know, the electrons start popping and you think, oh, my God, I need to do this. And that's why it doesn't work. Or, um, you know, sitting in there last May, I was doing one of the rewrites or finalizing um, The Returning Tide. And one of the things that bothered me is I'm thinking, why does this story work? And it was sitting in the thing and I was like, oh, my God, it's dramatic irony. That's why the story <laughs> works. But, you know, because you're not thinking that way the whole time. Yeah. It's really good. And then you think, ah, it's dramatic irony. So if I go through and I streamline this and tighten it all up. I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating because um, I guess you get out what you put into it experience-wise because it is, these things aren't, they're not extortionate, but they're not cheap either. We are talking hundreds of pounds, Mm. you know, and uh, to go on the Robert McKee course, I know is quite a chunk of change as well. And uh I would recommend starting with podcasts like ours. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then working your and way then up. asking, asking <laughs> well, amazing <laughs> authors direct advice yes. for free. Hey. <laughs> so Liz, on that note, actually, yeah. Um, so Mark and I, as you're aware, through this insane journey, we are attempting to write a bestseller. Maybe we should have started a bit less ambitiously, Mark, and just attempted to write a book. I'm kind of thinking now would have been a good starting point, but let, let's stick with the plot. We, we're trying to write this bestseller. We are. Four months, I think, into the process now. Yeah. And we are very much finding there are bits of the story that we're absolutely loving. There are bits of the story that we're just thinking something's not clicking. It's the clicking bit that I'm struggling with right now. It's like I'm trying to tie some things together. What advice would you have to us as someone who's no doubt been there where you just stuff isn't just flowing smoothly? in some places, how do you deal with those where you just need to try? It's almost like a jigsaw puzzle that won't quite fit together neatly. What do you do? Okay. Well, you're in your first draft. So what I would say to you is, and in fact, it's something that I've done intuitively that listening to Patrick Gale down in Penzance last week, he handwrites in the front of a notebook and at the back of the notebook, he puts his research and his questions that come up. He calls it his quarry. And I keep a notebook going during my first draft saying, oh God, you know, this doesn't work. Or I write directly into the manuscript. This is a load of crap. This is what needs to happen right now. But, and I need to seed this whole plot line in at the beginning, end bracket, and go on. Because going. if I stop at this point, I'm not going to meet my deadlines. But yes, you see, no, you, this Liz. is okay. Thank so you. I'm dropping so, the mic. Okay, Fuck. so here we have a situation. This is WWF wrestling book style. So, <laughs> so Mark's plowing on through, and but we had Joe Hill say it was supporting my thing of this crazy, like, oh, let's think of crazy ideas and go left and right. So we're all over the shop right now, which is good because we're challenging ourselves. Because I, I want to kind of fix. I want to get the jigsaw fitting right now so that we don't have to kind of reverse engineer fixes later and mark wants to get to the end and then deal with it what advice would you give us as two people who kind of approaching things in different ways it's very difficult but 
if you intend to finish this book by the end of the year, I'd say, get your first draft done. It is not that difficult. It's painful, but it's not that difficult. I used the knitting analogy and you probably, neither of you have ever made a sweater, but suddenly you're three quarters up the front half and you've realized you've dropped a stitch down at the bottom and you have to go down and you either rip the whole thing out, which I don't recommend, you know, deleting 70,000 words, or you carefully thread that piece through. It can be done. I think editing is the worst and the best bits about writing because I can write anywhere. The first draft, anywhere. doesn't matter. I can be on a plane. My kids can be around, whatever. It doesn't matter. But for editing, I need headspace because every change you make affects something else in the story. So I need a clean desk. I need no noise. And that's when I go in. But that's when the story comes alive. That's when all the things that you've left out, like I do only enough research to write the first draft and I leave lots of big X's in there knowing come back. And it's in the research that you get the twists and the turns and everything else. I think expecting it all in the first draft, particularly if it's the first time you've done a complete book, is too much. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing you said about the X's. I've heard other people use that. It's the idea that you you literally write XXX or something in, in the manuscript so that you can then search through mm-hmm. it and find where all of the holes or the extra search you need to find are. Yes. Along with my notes, this is <laughs> crap. Ian, Ian Rankin said something. I, I heard him talk last year and he said he only does the research after he's done his first draft of the novel because otherwise you just get bogged down in research and all the possibilities. You know. On a Cornish stranger, I thought the um, historical element for the 92-year-old is she was going to be involved in the SOE. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be really good on this. I did loads of research. And three quarters of the way through the first draft, I thought, this isn't going to work. So I had to shove that all out the door. And that was bye-bye time, bye-bye everything. So I think unless you really are very much a plotter and know exactly where you're going, which I'm not, then it's best to do only enough research to get that first draft down. Excellent. And what about your what about your routine, Liz? Are you quite kind of structured around how you write or are you more of a grab the time when you can? Well, have you read the wonderful Stephen King book um, on writing? Mm. Yes. I laughed like a loon when I read it, particularly that wonderful scene. It's a brilliant book. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved it. But he talks about going into his, his office and, you know, looking at the blank wall and everything else and staying in there until the words come and everything else. And I thought the man has a wife, you know, who does the laundry, who does the grocery shopping, who picks up the kids from school? Um, You know, that's, that's all very nice to think about, but I've learned to write as and when I can, as I say, a first draft, I can write anywhere, anytime in any amount of time. Because when I started writing again, I was tied to the school run, great discipline. And it was my youngest. So she was in reception or whatever. And I'd be there on this little net book in the car waiting for pickup, you know, because I had three hours she was in school. Then there was getting there, getting, you know, and groceries and everything else had to be acquired in that time. So um, that is a great thing. I'll never forget the first complete book when I started writing again. I tried to write a Mills and Boone because I thought this would be really easy to do. Huh. I remember sitting there at the dining room table, two boys doing homework, the, you know, the young one kind of running riot. And there I am writing a sex scene. 
I thought, if I can do this <laughs> while answering times table questions and everything else, then, you know, you can. But as I say, editing is another yeah, story. As long as, as, long as you so don't. Writing a Mills and Boone. So I was going to say, as long as you don't mix up when you're helping your daughter with her English homework and you'd be thinking. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're the second author to tell us that she tried writing a Mills mm. and Boone because Michelle Paver told us the same thing. Yes, she I thought heard. she'd write a, a sort of you know Harlequin romance yeah. novel and got a firm rejection from them. That's the only computer rejection I got. It's not easy, is no, it? No, it's not. Well, to write fifty thousand words, which seems very manageable, about two people not getting together and then getting together mm. and having legitimate reasons to keep them apart is very difficult. So my hat goes off to anybody that can. Well, do my it. hat my hat goes off to you, Liz, because you know, as a as a working dad in the family, and I see, I see my wife having to juggle all of all the things. I mean, I do help, I help, but but just she. I mean, put it this way: when she goes away for a week, and I'm trying to do my day job and trying to do the kids' lunches in the morning before school and get the washing done, I honestly think there should be a special award to every every mum who just manages to get by with that, let alone write and publish novels, because I think that's inspirational to us and to so many people who listen to the podcast. I, I know there are thousands of people in your position, you know, going back a few years. It's lovely to hear these stories because we need people like you out there making it happen as an inspiration to these people, you know, to mums and house dads as well, who are, who are struggling to, to even get the time to write. I honestly feel that if you have 20 minutes a day, truly 20 minutes, that's your time, you can write a novel in a year. I'm not saying edit it. I'm not saying anything else, but you can get the words down of a complete novel in 20 minutes. Because when I'm blocked, sometimes I put an egg timer on and I say, I'm going to write for 20 minutes and only 20 minutes. Even if I'm writing, I'm only going to write for 20 minutes. And by the time that thing goes ping, there'll be sometimes 100 words. Sometimes as many as 1500 words, because by giving myself that time, it takes the pressure off. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's the being perfect that stops most people. And let's be honest, even when it goes to publication, if you handed a book back to me, I'd still be fixing it. Yeah. I'd still be editing it. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Mark, about the, the writing group where people are super hypercritical of their own stuff. I think there is a point where you have to let go, don't you? Mm. And know it's an imperfect thing. Do you think, though, Liz, as well, I mean, I've just suddenly struck something here. So one of the most challenging things of any parent, especially, especially the parent who's looking after the kids and doing all that, as well as maybe a day job and everything else, is finding time for themselves, me time. <laughs> and it just suddenly hit me that by forcing yourself to do those 20 minutes a day, almost having to say, I have to do this, isn't that almost like a little bit of, therapy in a way like a yes. kind of the meditative moment where it stops you from going insane <laughs> with all the craziness of your life and maybe did you find that it's actually helped you in some ways it certainly did i mean my kids are now big and ugly so they're not really a problem but when they were small just this is mummy space i think the most challenging thing is when i was starting writing again and we had the desktop and all of us were on it oh, yeah. you know yeah. and they're wanting to do their games and everything else and they made best Christmas present I ever had, and there wasn't a lot of money around, is when they were all excited and they handed me my own laptop oh. on Christmas morning. <laughs> and it was like, we believe you can do this, mom. Yeah. 
And one of the things about that whole striving to do this is they were behind me. I wasn't trying to hide away that mummy's trying to write a book. And, you know, it's a long process. I mean, I started writing fiction again in 2004. I got my agent and um, publisher in 2011, and I was published in 2012. Now, it's not a short period. And I wrote a lot of books in that time, and I really made use of it. But one of the things I remember one summer, because as part of the Romantic Novelist Association, if you're a member of the new writer scheme, you have to produce a book a year, and it has to be, it's critiqued by another writer. And I was facing the deadline. It was August. We were in Cornwall. We had one week of sun. I was on deadline. So the kids didn't get out of the house. And at the end of the summer, they said to me, I'm sitting around, we're out for dinner. And I said, look, guys, do you want me to stop writing? And the eldest looked and he said, mom, no, that's not what we want. We want you to be better at time management. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That's harsh coming from a child as well. (laughs) Honestly, got time management down pat at at that age, right? (laughs) Well, let's just say he's a mechanical engineer now. So, Uh, okay. Okay. (laughs) He was starting early. Talking of uh, uh, inspirations as well, uh, you've mentioned a couple of books. You mentioned On Writing, which mm-hmm. I'm definitely a fan of, uh, Robert McKay's story, which yeah. I've definitely read. Are there any other books you would recommend? Any any that are on your shelf that you, you pull off every now and then? I pull off many. Um, I'm a firm believer that the right book falls in your hand at the right time. A bit like Stephen King. The first time I picked it up, it didn't grab me. But it was probably another year and a half I picked it up and it was the right time for me to read that book. One of the lovely rejections I got is from the, she's a writer now, Lucy Whitehouse. She was working for Dolly Anderson and she had read A Cornish Affair and rejected it beautifully. And she said, you really need to pick up Solstein Solutions for Writers. Light old moments everywhere. But now where I am, what I live for, is oh, you've brought a copy with I you. brought a copy of it. Um, well, listening to your podcast, you talk about you know everything's underlined and highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's a screenwriting book. It's inside story, the power of the transformational arc. So it's taking McKee to the next level. Right. It's not looking just at structure. It's looking at why screenplays fail because you know they've got too many car chases and they haven't looked at the emotional journey. <laughs> Of, I, I definitely need to read that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say if you haven't done story, if you haven't done Save the Cat, right. this is too sophisticated. You need to get the whole concept of story and Save the Cat and beats and that stuff in your head. And then this takes it to the next level. So before I start a book, I read. And at the middle of the book, when I'm, the crows of doubt are circling, you can see them around my head right now um, because I'm at the 50,000 word mark and I'm thinking, oh my God, where am I going with this? I pick it up and I read it again. Mm. And I look at my character's motivations and see what I'm doing. When I revise, I pick up Donald Mass's writing the breakout novel workbook. Mm. And I randomly pick um, scenes, you know, exercises out of the back and rewrite scenes and normally that's how I warm up as well. And I'll just open the book to any old page. Oh, there's an interesting exercise. Right. Open the manuscript to a certain page, do that. And then wow. I then have something in my head as I'm going through. That's brilliant. Trip to the bookstore, then, Mark. That's yes. really good because actually a lot of the times you think of doing writing exercises in like classes where you're just dreaming something up, but to use the exercises in your manuscript, that's, that's brilliant. That's, and who wrote that book, the other one that you mentioned, the one that you picked up there, who's actually, who actually wrote that book? Oh, Dara Marks. 
Great. We'll put we'll put links to all of these on the Facebook page, on our Twitter page. We'll also put them at the back of the Vault of Gold, which is the free ebook you What's, can download. Yeah, what what is the Vault of Gold, Mark? The Vault of Gold is our free ebook, <laughs> uh, which if you sign up to the Bestseller Experiment uh, mailing list, uh, you will get upon return, either as an EPUB or a PDF. And it has transcripts of all the interviews with our wonderful guests. So it also has very useful links in the back. And we'll put links there to Cornerstone. We'll put links to all the books that we've discussed today. And uh, if we were to look for you online, Liz, where would we find you? I am on Twitter as Liz underscore Fennec. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Those are the ones I enjoy using most. And LizFennec.com, the website? LizFennec.com, the website, which is more a launch pad for people to get in touch. Great stuff. Excellent. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show today. We've really appreciated hearing all of your honesty and wisdom <laughs> and <laughs> and your inspiring stories about how you've made it happen. You know, juggling all of the many things in life and uh yeah look forward to uh reading the returning tide which is your first non-cormal title book no and it's, it's half historical as well so it's oh. a real step out now you're, you were talking about you're halfway through book six now as yep. well did you ever imagine there would be a book six no i mean <laughs> i don't think you get thinking beyond your your first contract um, and that was for two books. And you think, well, here's one. Oh, my God, I've got to do something about the second. And then suddenly you've got another one and another one. Thank God. And, you know, you but, go on. But clearly something's working. I like telling stories. Good. Excellent. We like hearing them. Thank you so much. Um, so please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes if you've enjoyed this podcast today. You can get in contact with us at bestsellerexperiment.com. You can join us on social media. Tell us where how you're getting on uh, with your own bestseller. We're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter at Bestseller XP. We're on Pinterest where we have pretty pictures and, and also the covers of uh, the books that our guests have written. So we'll find that beautiful Cornish house. We'll put that up on Pinterest for all to see. And we're on Instagram too. We do love Instagram. That's and that's at bestseller xp2 i'm on twitter at mark's day and my colleague here is at 4000 saturdays and a really interesting thing liz mentioned earlier which i'm just going to bring in now because we like to give our scriven a tip and one of the things that liz said is never throw anything away and something mark did a couple of months ago which i really appreciated in scrivener is he created a little folder called the do we call dead it a dead ideas bucket? Dead ideas bucket. <laughs> and the thing is, when you think about it, you can't do that kind of thing easily in, say, a standard word processor. You know, you've, you've got bits that you're chopping out. And so what we now have is we have this very large, growing, dead buckets idea. But it's amazing the amount of times that I dip into it just to scan through and see what's in there. Because that can sometimes act as a bit of an inspiration to think, oh, yeah, we wrote about that a couple of months ago. And now it might be relevant again. And so in Scrivener, you can basically create these little folders. And if you've got a little note, if you like, that no longer is relevant, you can just literally drag it in there. And it's just there praying and pleading that one day you'll release it from this, the world the zombie apocalypse of writing. And uh, so that's a great tip if you, if you don't do that. I mean, I'm not sure how you would do that outside of something like Scrivener, but it's definitely worth having a repository, should we say, an archive of everything. So never throw it away. It's a great tip. So thanks again for that, Liz. You mentioned, I'm going to jump in here, uh, because you did mention before we were recording at Cornerstone, one of the Cornerstone, they showed one of your early drafts. Ah, oh, at the Romantic Novelist Conference oh, last right, year, okay, Cornerstones okay. were giving a presentation. They con 
contacted me beforehand and they asked me if I was feeling brave. And they yeah. asked me for an early version of the Cornish House, the first 500, 1,000 words, and then the finished edited, you know, published version and put them up on the screen, which was scary because, mm. of course, you're sh- I'm dyslexic. Um, and so inevitably, no matter how hard I tried, there will be spelling mistakes and errors and, and so forth. And to see the difference between the two, so many people learned from that what looked like a perfectly good beginning and how it was tightened and strengthened through rewriting and editing. That's amazing. I- I'm just going to say this now, Mark. No one, no one is seeing our first draft. I'm telling you that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's definitely just for our eyes only. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much. And don't forget, folks, if you want to check out all the competitions that we've got going on, we have many, many incredible book giveaways from our authors. And so pop along to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com, where you will see a little link which says win. And it shows you all the competitions that are currently running, signed books and lots of goodies. So please pop along to that. And we look forward to joining you again next week. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.